Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews online for about 25 years now, and you can read all of my written work at that website, Quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out my other podcast. It's currently called the Quipster Film Review Podcast. I There are some changes that are going to be made to that podcast. In fact, if you listen to the latest episode, I put out a call to my loyal listeners asking for some ideas as to where they want the future of the show to go, if they want it to change at all. You can find that episode and also respond to it by going to quipster.net, checking out the link to the Quipster Film Review Podcast. I'll look forward to hearing from you when you have the time. Today, I'm going to be getting into the second part of this three-part series, looking at the poltergeist films of the 1980s. Of course, I did Poltergeist from 1982 on the previous episode. Going to 1986 for this one, Poltergeist 2, The Other Side. Poltergeist 2 is a PG-13 rated film. It does have scary images, violence, and language. The runtime is about an hour and 31 minutes. Craig T. Nelson, Jo Beth Williams, Heather O'Rourke, Oliver Robbins, and Zelda Rubenstein reappear. Julian Beck, Will Sampson, and Geraldine Fitzgerald are newcomers to this film. Brian Gibson, this time out, is the director. Michael Grace and Mark Victor, the screenwriters. Now, Poltergeist, obviously, was a, a pretty big success in 1982. A sequel seemed, of course, an inevitability, especially for the financially struggling MGM. And Jim's president at the time of Poltergeist, Freddie Fields, he regarded... The property as this check just waiting to be cashed. Toby Hooper, Steven Spielberg, they actually for a short time discussed an idea that they had for a follow-up. It would involve the National Guard quarantining Cuesta Verde and they would bring in the scientists to enter the realm of the dead. It would be much more science fiction based this time out than it would be a horror film. But financial troubles did put MGM into turmoil and by the time they started to get some of their bearings. Spielberg and Hooper had already moved on to other things, and they really couldn't come back for the sequel. Now, Fields did step away from MGM in 1984, and he became an independent producer, but he did remain as the Poltergeist sequel's executive producer. Nonetheless, because Spielberg was unavailable, Fields decided to pursue the credited co-screenwriters of Poltergeist, Michael Grace and Mark Victor to write a continuation if they desired. Grace and Victor, they had been working on the Jerry Lee Lewis biopic called Great Balls of Fire when they were approached to script Poltergeist. And they said they would accept on one condition that they could also be the producers, as well as have carte blanche to do whatever they wanted with the story, including ditching the Freelings and starting with a different family if those actors were not going to accept returning. This was deemed acceptable, and the writers decided to approach Jo Beth Williams and Craig T. Nelson. However, as expected, neither seemed very interested. Nelson was busy with his TV series called Call to Glory. He didn't really want to interrupt that to return to this role that he considered fairly superficial. Williams declined because she felt that Poltergeist had been typecasting her in Hollywood. She was 
getting offered almost nothing but generic mother roles in films and TV shows. So Grace and Victor felt that they should entice Williams and Nelson. They would allow them to shape their own characters if they would accept returning. So they discussed with Nelson some of his ideas. Nelson talked about a time when he had once been broke. He had quit acting. He had moved his family to this rural area near Mount Shasta in California. And he had gotten to know a a shaman there that he felt that that would be kind of a new twist to bring in uh, a different spiritual guide that they could build the next story around. Now, Grace, coincidentally, had been somebody who studied shamanism, and he had read numerous Carlos Castaneda books on the subject, and so he decided to incorporate some of Nelson's anecdotal interactions that he had with some of the things that he personally knew from his studies. So when working on the first draft, the writers felt that, to make it a little bit different, because the mother had been the one who did the saving in the first poltergeist, that this time out, it should be the father. And the father would be suffering a lack of self-confidence so severe that it was spurring the family's trajectory of downward mobility. The story arc would need him to find a way to take charge of his family once again. The plot here is built on the premise that the father's life is falling apart because he thinks that things are beyond his control. Now it's the women in the family with the power. And Steve Freeling must man up and take charge of his family by destroying the evil before the family gets seduced to their destruction. Now, Jobeth Williams, she had recently lost her grandmother, and she was strongly feeling that component to her thinking about the afterlife. And the more they incorporated her suggestions as well as Nelson's into the new script, the more invested these actors would feel in the final product and less likely to say no. So they got to work on completing the script featuring the Freelings without actually knowing if this was really a sure thing. And they determined that making it much more personal to the actors would result in a deeper and more enriching story instead of just a rehash of the original formula. Although Poltergeist had not been made with sequels in mind per se, Grace and Victor did realize that the underlying reason for the ghost attacks really was not resolved at the end of the first film. It really ends with the Freelings moving away from their home in Cuesta Verde, but the bodies in the cemetery are still there under the housing complex. So they drew a lot from their experience in working with Spielberg on Poltergeist, and they set about scripting their sequel, beginning with putting some background information in that was meant to be put in the first film, but didn't really make the final cut. And that included such things as the restless spirits, their nature, being settlers who were massacred by Native Americans back in the 19th century. That changes a little bit for the course of this film, as well as some character touches and other reveals that they planned to put into the first film, but they never got around to it. The writers devised that the youngest child in the Freeling family was wanted by these spirits, and these spirits would be coming from this cult, which would be headed by this minister named Kane. He was actually called Boatwright in some of the early drafts, but Kane manifests himself in human form, and he's very tenacious in pursuing Carol Ann, trying to get into where the family is currently residing, the grandmother Jess's house in Phoenix, Arizona. Tangina Barron, the paranormal investigator from the first film, she sends out this Native American shaman to help protect the family after discovering that there's this cave under Cuesta Verde where Kane and his followers died, and that's really what's causing the Great Disturbance. Now, Craig T. Nelson liked this new script, especially that they incorporated a lot of his suggestions for the structure of the story. They were going to infuse a much more spiritual journey here. In fact, Nelson thought it was better than the script that he had read for the original Poltergeist, and it was sufficiently different that it could work really as a standalone film. 
So he signed on. They also pursued the child actors for the Freeling children, Heather O'Rourke and Oliver Robbins. Robbins eagerly signed on just to get out of school where he was being bullied constantly. This was a great respite for him. Heather O'Rourke was also an easy sign-on as well. But yet there were still Joe Beth Williams that still had signed on. So Freddie Fields and the producing team made several trips to Nevada where Williams was busy shooting another film called Desert Bloom. Now, although the new script incorporated a lot of her suggestions, she still at that point was unsure. But she had a lot of friends who were encouraging her, go ahead and take the role. The money offer was much more generous than the first time out, and they truly did want to know what happened to the Freelings after the conclusion of Poltergeist. So this was something that fans would appreciate. Now, with the other actors returning, Williams determined that really she couldn't stomach thinking about seeing another actress replace her in the role, especially since she essentially created a lot of what's going to be happening in the new film with the revisions that incorporated her ideas. She felt a strong proprietary interest in seeing it happen, so she finally accepted. Now, poltergeist Richard Edlund returned to handle the special effects, along with over a hundred of his technicians from his new venture, Beyond Industrial Light and Magic, the Boss Film Company. They began work before the script actually was even finished. And after reading the first script, Edlund estimated to Grace and Victor that it would cost about $12 million to perform all of the things that they wanted. And that actually exceeded the entire budget of the first poltergeist. So this was not going to work. MGM was on its way to bankruptcy. So Victor and Grace revised their script. They had to get the special effects budget down to below $5 million. And the overall total budget was set at $18.5 million. Now for the director, Grace and Victor, they didn't want to copycat Hooper and Spielberg. So they met with a number of potential directors and they were really looking for a new and innovative approach. And eventually they settled on this British documentary director who once made medical scientific documentaries while he was with the BBC, Brian Gibson. Now Gibson's only prior feature credit was this little scene 1980 new wave music riff on A Star Is Born called Breaking Glass that really didn't fare so well financially or critically. But after this, his career was relegated mostly to directing commercials and music videos, and Gibson had been hired to work on another film that fell through, and that's when this MGM executive said that Grace and Victor should meet with Gibson to see if he perhaps could work with them. They found him very agreeable and very easygoing, and Gibson won the job because he came in, out of all the other people that they talked to, the most prepared, the most knowledgeable, and really the most enthusiastic about doing the movie. Now, Gibson, when he came in, he ordered major changes to the work that had already been done prior to his approval, mostly having to do with the effects work. Now, some of the crew walked out at this stage due to these changes, including production manager Austin Jewell, who was frustrated by the lack of experience, especially by Grace and Victor. He was replaced by Ted Howarth, who worked with the producers on Death Hunt before this. Gibson revised the climax. He thought it was too highbrow and ultimately too expensive. The effects crew despised this because they thought that by changing it, he was negating the ending's emotional impact, where the Freeling family is going to vanquish the, the demon through the power of their love for each other. The love aspect would be changed to the shaman's ceremonial spear that Steve would hurl into the body of the great beast to seal his transformation back to being the head of the family. Now, the laid-back Brian Gibson, he really had experience working with actors, 
But this was really his first time working with effects technicians, and he didn't realize that effects technicians really need concrete instructions, which is something that Gibson rarely gave because Gibson preferred to have all his options open. Edlin started to grow incensed because ultimately, whatever Gibson seemed to shoot didn't really match with what the effects crew had been told was going to happen and that would either force complete redos of the footage that Gibson had given or the weeks of work that the effects crew had put into each scene, which caused, obviously, a lot of groveling all around. Gibson was also infrequently available to answer questions, and that resulted in the Boss Film team consulting either Freddie Fields or editor Tom Noble, further creating inconsistencies with the final product. And when those people seemed to be unavailable, the Boss Film technicians decided, well, maybe they should just make their own decisions which made the producers ultimately very furious. Now, Gibson obviously was a surprising choice. Not only was he new, but he had no experience with ever doing anything in the horror genre, and he wasn't particularly a fan of it either. Early in 1983, though, Gibson had sought out this psychic advisor named Jill Cook because he was desperate for any sign of life to his struggling career at that point. And Cook told him that in the autumn of 1984, that Gibson would be offered a feature film with a spiritual subject matter that he should take. The offer to helm Poltergeist 2 came unsolicited in his mail in November of 1984. So this was the sign he was looking for. And Gibson was so amazed by Jill Cook's abilities that she was hired by him to advise him on problem solving throughout the production. And one of Cook's greatest contributions was in helping to cast Will Sampson as Taylor, the Native American spiritual guide. Samson happened to be a real-life shaman for the Muscogee or Creek tribe, actually several different tribes. The producers originally wanted Harry Dean Stanton to play that role, but Stanton didn't really like the subject matter, so Samson was hired, and he advised the writers on such things as avoiding dishonest Native American stereotypes, so he really did come in handy there. Now, Grace had wanted to cast Julian Beck in the role of Reverend Kane. Grace met Beck when he had attended his living theater while in Lima, Peru. Now, the studio would not insure Beck because Beck was gravely ill at the time. But the psychic, Jill Cook, advised Gibson, just go ahead and cast him because she sensed that he was going to be good in the role and he needed Poltergeist 2 in his spiritual journey to accept the inevitability of his death. Beck would die from stomach cancer within a few days after the film's wrap at the age of 60, to the surprise of all of his co-stars, to whom he never revealed his illness, and he'd often talk with them about his future plans, plans that he knew would probably not ever happen. Voice actor Corey Burton came in to provide the voice of Kane as needed in the post-production looping the ADR work after the fact. The writers came up with the character of Kane. They envisioned kind of a Jim Jones type, a preacher that was going to lead to the demise of his flock, but he would also carry the demeanor and the appearance of Robert Mitchum as Reverend Harry Powell in the film Night of the Hunter. Both Kane and Powell sing hymns as they approach the family house. Kane also wants Carol Ann because her aura shone brighter than anyone else that had entered the astral plane. Grace knew as soon as he inhabited Reverend Kane, everybody was pretty unnerved. In fact, her O'Rourke cried the first time that she saw Julian Beck because he, he looked so menacing. Grace said that Beck's performance in Poltergeist 2 is so masterful as the agent of evil that if somebody watches this movie and remembers nothing else, they would always remember Beck's presence within it. 
Now, Brian Gibson, the director, was not as open as Toby Hooper or Steven Spielberg on letting his actors improvise. He preferred that they stick with the script and his vision, but there are some changes that needed to be made. For instance, Robbie was originally scripted to be attacked by bees during one sequence, as their bedroom gets filled with several feet of goop after their lava lamp overflows. However, Oliver Robbins was allergic to bees, so they concocted a different sequence where he would be attacked and cocooned by his own braces on his teeth. Now, Robbins didn't wear braces personally, so he had to wear a retainer to look like he had real braces, but he could not speak without a lisp with the retainer in his mouth. So they hired a vocal acting coach to work with Robbins through the issue, but still much of the lisp had to be cleared up with ADR. See, I guess you don't really hear the lisp in the end anyway. Now, one original cast member that does not return here from the Freeling family was Dominique Dunn. She played the eldest Freeling child. Dunn, unfortunately, she was murdered by her former boyfriend shortly after the release of Poltergeist. Poltergeist 2 is dedicated to Dunn's memory, although curiously, there is absolutely no mention of her character within the film. It's presumed she went off to college, but we never actually learn from any of the dialogue within the film as to what happened to that character. As with the first film, the experience of making Poltergeist 2 was extremely physical and draining, emotionally as well. Jo Beth Williams did find the experience very exhausting. The effects weren't really in place for some of the emotional scenes, so Williams had to conjure up emotions by imagining very painful things happening to the people she loved most. She especially disliked a particular sequence where she gets violently thrown around for kind of a would-be rape sequence involving her demonically possessed husband. Craig T. Nelson also found the sexual assault attempt uncomfortable to have to perform, you know, for days on end. His character's drunken state also hit a little too close to home for Nelson because Nelson had recently gone sober following quite a few years of alcohol and drug abuse. Now, Jo Beth Williams grew unnerved after learning that they used real skeletons that were purchased from a medical supplier in India for the cavern sequence in this film, something reportedly that was also done, although she didn't really know it, for the first film. Will Sampson, the real-life shaman and actor, initiated a burial ceremony to try to quell the spirits of the real-life skeletons. And interestingly, things calmed down on the set after that. Now, Jo Beth Williams was disappointed that some scenes got cut out, including her favorite scene from the finished film. It involved Diane and Steve. They were making breakfast during the scene, and then they are startled when the toaster begins floating in midair. Steve jams his slices of bread into this feisty toaster, and the toaster flips upside down, dumping the slices on his head. Kind of a comic relief segment there in the middle of this film. Williams did enjoy very much working with Nelson, so that was at least some relief for her, and she hoped that they could contribute on a much lighter film down the road that did not involve decomposing skeletons, although, unfortunately, that never came to pass. Now, I mentioned this film was also physically exhausting, too. The actors had to hang in harnesses in front of this blue screen for about three and a half weeks every day, all day long, while somebody was shining a flashlight in their faces. The harnesses were time-consuming to get on, so the actors had to go all day, holding from going to the bathroom, up to seven hours a day, really. Lamb's wool was there on the straps to protect some of the sensitive body areas, but after prolonged wear, they really started to hurt anyway, especially when they were being lifted upwards. They really dug in to those sensitive areas. 
Gibson also hired Swiss artist H.R. Giger for some design work. If you know that name, Giger is famed for his xenomorph design for 1979's film Alien. Giger had worked with Gibson before on this science fiction horror project called The Tourist that Universal Pictures was going to do, but then it was scrapped when they decided to make E.T. instead. Gibson told Giger he wanted him to design something that would scare him personally most. So Giger had this recurring kind of nightmarish vision of worms that were growing under his skin or living inside his body. And at some point he would just throw up and it would just be worms coming out. So spinning off of that, the writers designed that Steve would be able to ingest a worm by drinking a bottle of mezcal in his depression. Now, Giger was not going to be available to be on set all the time. He made he could make a couple of visits, but for months on end, he would be in his native Switzerland. So he sent his friend and art director Cornelius Connie DeFries to advise the effects crew for the worm's metamorphosis into what would ultimately become the great beast that becomes the nemesis during the film's climax. Originally, the beast was to be this ghost-like monster that has all the spirit energy surrounding him, but... The effects team didn't have the budget to make all of this because it would require like 90 optical effects to achieve. So they decided they were going to make it much more of a mechanical creature and they would have to simplify a lot of those complex Giger designs. Noble Craig, he was a, a paraplegic actor who lost an arm and both legs while serving in the Vietnam War. He was put into a physical monster suit, dubbed here the Horror Baby. He had the face of Kane. Now, fans of Giger and of Alien will note similarities to the xenomorph life cycle in Alien and the worms turn into the great beast within Poltergeist 2. And coincidentally, both films feature a character named Kane as part of that metamorphosis. Giger despised what the effects crew did with this design. Many of his designs were not even used in the film. And he says that one of the main problems is that his creatures are terrifying if you put them in the realm of reality, but the makers of Poltergeist 2 threw them into a, ultimately a fantasy realm where they really weren't as scary as they should be. Poltergeist 2 was partially filmed in Chatsworth, California. That's where reportedly they ended up shooting atop a real-life Native American burial ground. They were a little unnerved to find out that later, but luckily no strange incidents did occur there. But they did experience those recurring difficulties while they were shooting at the studio. A lot of lighting, the camera equipment frequently had mishaps. The crew felt there seemed to be bad energy all around while they were there, as if there was this unseen poltergeist among them that was causing all of this trouble. So Samson volunteered to visit the set at 4 a.m. each day during the cave sequence to perform his shaman purification ritual. Few knew that he actually did this, but notably... The producers do report that the vibe changed immediately when Samson started doing this, and the production did run remarkably smoothly afterward. A private residence in Altadena, California, served as the exterior of Grandma Jess's Phoenix abode. There was also a full-size replica of that house constructed on the MGM lot to allow the pitching and shaking needed to simulate the haunting experience for the house. The house's second story, in fact, was built atop this device that rocked around like a mechanical bull, and the, a miniature of the neighborhood was created for a lot of the overhead shots that they would use to add special effects to later. Unfortunately, many scenes were excised from the film, some directly from the final script and some cut out from the final cut. One involved the subplot of Kane first appearing in Carol Ann's dreams, 
One where he tears into his chest to pull out his heart for her to touch, and he gets stopped by Taylor, who can also enter dreams, we find out. Others involve Tangina's obsession with Cuesta Verde, getting the assistance of Dr. Lesh from the original Poltergeist to excavate the Freeling lot, discovering a cave system and native markings underneath. Uh, Dr. Lesh and her assistants would soon enter too far within the cave system, and they would venture into the so-called other side of the title and never return. There was also more backstory in the script for Taylor's character about his tribal ancestors who once believed in Cain's spiritual mission becoming disillusioned and then leaving prior to this doomsday spewing Cain trapping his flock within the cave that would lead ultimately to their deaths. The staff that kills Cain at the end is supposed to have been passed down from those ancestors. And much of this storyline, if you're really interested, still remains in James Kahn's novelization that was done from one of those early scripts. Jerry Goldsmith also returned as the composer for Poltergeist 2. Goldsmith grew frustrated, though, with the erratic decisions that were causing a frequent post-production changes. Every time they cut something or add something, that, that would require a lot of rescoring and resulted in a lot of rushed compositions, mostly regurgitating some of the themes that he used in the original film. He was especially saddened to see many of the sequences between Carol Ann and Grandma Jess were cut from the final film because he thought that's where he was delivering the strongest emotional compositions. Those were all but completely removed. Now, MGM, as I mentioned, they were deeply in debt, and they really needed Poltergeist 2 to be a smashing success. Gibson had turned in this 130-minute rough cut, but it was deemed by the studio too soft, and it really lacked a lot of scares, they felt. So MGM ordered reshoots, with additional jolts placed in at periodic intervals. Gibson was very unhappy they were going to do this. He didn't have any part with the re-editing or the reshoots. The studio had Boss Films art supervisor, John Bruno, film additional jump scares to be put into the movie, and the effects crew added additional scares, including a decaying Carol Ann in the astral plane and momentary zombie attacks imagined by the family. They also trimmed the runtime ultimately to about 91 minutes to maximize theatrical showings upon release to really recoup some of their money. Sequences giving more relationship with Grandma Jess and Taylor, those were scaled back significantly, as well as confrontations that occurred between Kane and Tangina and Taylor. And many scenes during this editing process were jumbled chronologically in the process, making it somewhat continuity-wise jump around for people who really pay attention to those things. MGM did invest $10 million advertising campaign to blanket the American market, but despite a big opening week, Poltergeist 2 did fade fast, and it only made $40 million domestically, although it did make a lot more money in European markets. As with Poltergeist, the visual effects earned the film an Academy Award nomination here. A dubious award nomination did go to Zelda Rubinstein, who received a Worst Supporting Actress nomination for the Razzies of that year. Now, as far as what I think about Poltergeist 2, I do think that it's it's not nearly as mesmerizing as a scarefest as the original Poltergeist. The sequel does find some new and interesting wrinkles. I don't think there's quite enough fresh material here that, to really sate those who are hungry for the Spielbergian heights of the first film, but I do think it still has a very solid cast the special effects here are still very top-notch for a mid-1980s release. You know, all of this is practical effects. The creep factor is certainly high during certain sequences, particularly when some of the gorier effects come into play late in the film. 
But director Brian Gibson, he, he's not quite able to generate the requisite suspense and the tension to make this anything more than an occasionally uneasy shocker. And that's despite some of the jump scares that were thrown in in post-production by MGM. So if it's not that scary now, it must have really been not that scary in that original rough cut. Now, bringing back Michael Grays and Mark Victor, it does keep the characterizations very consistent with what we knew in the first film. But without Spielberg's genius as a filmmaker, I think the delivery for Poltergeist 2 is not nearly as remarkable. And while Poltergeist easily featured a handful of memorably scary scenes and real moments of intrigue, Poltergeist 2 only really stands out ultimately for Beck's formidable performance. His gaunt face, his imposing demeanor, it really makes him a good foil for this naive family. Very creepy to observe. The effects here ultimately are the real show. And while they're occasionally gruesome, they're not really always terrifying. Sometimes it's hard to watch, not because it's scary, but because some of it is kind of nauseating. A chainsaw attacks the family station wagon. That seems kind of silly. Robbie's braces come alive. Initially, that's unnerving, but you know, in retrospect, it's kind of a silly idea as well. There are other mild jolts, but I don't think that most people are going to cover their eyes out of fear, with the exception of that that Giger-designed vomit monster. I don't think that Poltergeist 2 is a dud, personally, even though most people consider it a disappointment. I do think it's really only of interest for curious fans of the first film's backstory. You're going to get some of that here. I don't think it's as bad as its reputation would have you believe. But I do think that, if anything, it does prove that the grass is not always greener on the other side. And that's why I give Poltergeist 2 the other side Three stars out of four. Three stars on my scale means that I do recommend it for people who like this kind of movie. I think it's acceptable fare for people who like the first film and want to see more of these characters and to get more of that backstory. I do think it's effective there. But anybody looking for that roller coaster ride of thrills and horrors that the first film was are going to be disappointed that it doesn't really generate that momentum here. Julian Beck, though, is worth watching. And I think ultimately what makes this film recommendable for me is that performance. Unfortunately, he died within days of finishing this film, so we never got to see that big franchise that would spin forth from Julian Beck. In the short amount of time that he appears in this film, he becomes one of the great horror villains of the 1980s, I feel. So three stars out of four is what I give Poltergeist 2. Now, obviously, I'm going to be continuing on this series, with Poltergeist 3 from 1988 on the next episode. And if nothing else, Poltergeist 3 really does make Poltergeist 2 seem even better, but there's a lot to that production that is worth investigating. So even if you're not a big fan of Poltergeist 3, I do encourage you to check out the next episode covering the 1988 film. If you have your own thoughts on Poltergeist 2 that you want to impart to me, you can find my contact information on my website. That's at quipster.net. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, my Instagram are all there. Email, I do think, is the easiest way to get in touch with me. And until next time, thank you so much, everyone, for joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. (laughs) 